Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you need the news, but also need to feel smarter and calmer, and who doesn't, then you need to get an Andy Slavitt's bubble. Andy is a former White House advisor and the ultimate outsider's insider. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Andy offers his access to leading experts. Join Andy for discussions on COVID, gun violence, climate change, and more. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt is available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by my friend Mark Zeno for what I imagine will be a very lively and interesting conversation with someone whose politics are not the same as ours. So hang around for that. But Ravi, how are you doing? Dude, I am doing really well. I've got the Pacific Coast Highway right behind me here. I'm in Malibu, which is part of my continued effort to be as relatable as possible to our audience. I'm out here (laughs) serving. Surfing, and it's just been a wonderful trip. I was surfing the other day, and a whole group of dolphins not only surfed near me, but I was literally in the middle of them all. And you know, dolphins, I guess, are super friendly. Like they weren't in any way threatened, and they were just jumping in and out of the water. It That's was awesome. absolutely incredible. The trip has been everything I expected to be. Shout out to our buddy Shomik, who turned forty, which is what brought me out here. In the How first was place. that party? Was it? Uh... It was a total. People are going to get mad at me, and a lot of John, Tommy, the crooked guys were there too. It was. If somebody asked me yesterday, how was it? Was it the like crazy rager you were expecting it to be? I was like, no, it was the final nail in the coffin to remind me that we are old. All <laughs> these people I know from the days of Obama and I barely see it anymore because they all moved out here to L.A. I only know from like 4 a.m. hanging out at the underground in Chicago or whatever during the Obama administration, and then waking up two hours later to go to the office and work like we had never been out. Everybody was like. Oh yeah, let's we're gonna roll an hour and a half later. Everybody's looking at their watches. They all got kids. Everybody's just like, all right, I think it's time to go. <laughs> that was the party. It was a reminder of our age, you know. So that's uh, awesome. But everybody seems to be doing well. It's good to see you know, the Obama crowd doesn't get together that much anymore. So it was cool to see people, you know. It's a good segue into uh the thing I was gonna bring up. I wanted to shout out a listener. So we had a uh, hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna go out on the town night. But here's what it looks like for us: um, a listener to the show, Anto Pagan, uh, who is also an actor, is in Kansas City for there's a, a touring performance of um, Sister Act, the musical. And despite our family, uh, you know, history and like how many family members we have who work in that world, True has never seen a musical. And so Anto Pagan reached out and was like, "Hey, I'm gonna be performing in Kansas City." She plays Mother Superior in it. She was fantastic. She's like, I, can I leave three tickets for you and Diana and True? 
obviously Bella uh, too young for it. And we were like, sure. So, but that was like our night out. Like we were, True was up till 11. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, but the show was so cool. And what was so neat was like beforehand, True was like, we're like, okay, we're going to a musical. And he's like, ah, so it's going to be tough. Yeah. And he's like, he, he kept being like, can we just go to a baseball game? I would rather see a baseball game. And we're like, we're going to learn new things. We're going to expose <laughs> ourselves to new things. And he was so reluctant. And then as soon as the show starts, he was sitting between us and Diana and I just looked at each other and we're so happy because his face, he was like, you could tell well, this in is his blood. amazing. It's yeah. in his blood. That's you right. And, and, but he's just like, but also like. It's live. It's yeah, just who's amazing, your, right? Who's your Who's your uncle? Your uncle did. Yeah, my uh, great uncle John, who wrote New York, New York, and Cabaret in Chicago, and and yeah. um, unbelievable. And was, yeah, just a, just a few of those things. Yeah, right. it's just <laughs> and and but so but true. You know, he's just about turn nine. Like he can't. Just like I, when I was that age, I couldn't conceptualize that. So he was just, he loved every second of it. And then at intermission, we, we went to the restroom and everything. And we get back to our seats and Diana was talking with a friend she ran into. And True's like, dad, we got to go get mom. And we, he was like sprinting. He's like, I don't want to miss any of it. And so then afterwards we got to, you know, go backstage and meet the people in it. And this was the coolest thing. And brought a copy of courage is the children's book that true oh, and, I wow. wrote. and so here's true he's just watched all these people perform he's like really nervous but he's going backstage and he's like excited to meet everybody and then one of the stars of the show presents to him his book and asks him to sign it, <laughs> it was, i feel like it was cool i feel like the work you're gonna have to do to to help him understand the way that life works for normal people it's like we talk about it a lot. He's almost like a child actor, you know, <laughs> like we need, to, we need to be like, look, most people don't walk backstage and then they definitely don't have somebody hand them their book. Most actually yeah. kids don't write a book. Actually, true. We, <laughs> we, uh, we talk about it a lot because, you know, people recognize this and come up. We were talking about that and true was just saying, you know, it's kind of weird when your parents are, are well known, but he's like, but it's cool. And what was funny was I asked him, I was like, so what do you think when people come up and they want to meet me or your mom? Uh, he was just basically like, I don't I'm thinking about how like you often don't start the dishwasher. Like, you know, cause these people are like, wow, it's so great to meet you. So then last night we were at the Royals game and a few people came up to say something and true just turns and, and yells, he goes, he doesn't even start the dishwasher a lot of the time. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, wow. I think that's good perspective. I think he's like, think so. Yeah, this is, you know. This well, is you should dad. start doing it back to him. You know, oh, yeah. see how Heckling much he likes public? that. See They're how much like, he likes that. Yeah. yeah, like, hey, you don't uh, get dressed very fast. All right, let's talk I, some trash. Let me just give people a little window into how we do this. So throughout the week, you and I, pretty much ninety percent text about trash talk content. Mm-hmm. Like this week, I was looking at our text chain. It's like random, serious life thing, and then like nine possibilities for the talking trash segment where we're essentially just being like, oh, this is better than that thing, which is yeah, better than this thing. topping the next. Yeah, which I honestly think we could have a whole audiobook of just trash talking segments every week. So here's my favorite. My favorite is the Top Gov video. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your governor speaking. Today's training evolution, dogfighting, taking on the corporate media. To set this up, the Top Gov video, Ron DeSantis in his what gubernatorial reelect, I think, cuts this this video where it's basically him not doing a parody, but like pretending to be Maverick and Top Gun, but he's he's giving the rules, you know, his rules of politics. And he's like, Don't fire unless fired upon, but when they fire, you fire back with overwhelming force. 
Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the Basically just being a jerk to reporters. That's pretty much what it is. Interspersed with him in a flight suit, in a flight jacket, looking like he's, you know, actually at the, the set of Top Gun. And then at the end, climbing in to the cockpit of what is supposed to be a fighter jet. And then you have like some B-roll clips of like fighter jets doing maneuvers. I'm going to stop there because I have a whole thing on this. You go ahead. Well, I just noticed that who tweeted it out, which at least from what I saw was his wife. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, I want to find somebody who loves me that much that they <laughs> would that they would see me acting like a complete asshole and just be like, yeah, that's my husband. I love him. You know? Yeah, I'm proud like, of the way he's just rude to people doing their job. Right. right. Just like that's unconditional love, I would say. Like, look, I would stack that higher than, hey, my husband became a quadriplegic and I'm going to stick by them. I would put this one notch ahead of that <laughs> and be like, all right, I am just sticking by you no matter what. Okay, I'm going to do the the talking trash part of it first, and then I want to do like the why I wanted to bring it up, why I think we should keep an eye on this thing. Okay, the talking trash part of it is, um, don't do this. Like if like I don't look, we're going to get I'm going to get in in a minute to um, Ron DeSantis's military record and all that. Like, look, he's he's in the Navy. Like, I'm not I'm not taking that away from him. But like, if you're going to if you're going to dress like an actual movie star. In a role like and and act like you're portraying the same role as them. I'm not trying to body shame anybody. And Ron DeSantis is in, you know, he's in above average shape, probably for for, for Americans. For Americans right now, you know, I don't know if he is or not. But my point is, don't try that. I, I wasn't doing ads where I was trying to be Brad Pitt and Troy, okay, like or or Fight Club or whatever. Like I'm in good shape. I know my limits. And and like. Don't do that. It's not a good idea. It doesn't come off well. Also, don't act. Like, for God's sake, if you can't act, which is 99% of politicians, stop trying to act. It just makes us so uncomfortable. When he's supposed to be addressing people in that scene, and he's like, you know, supposed to be like Maverick and Top Gun, like, I'm just like, oh, it just, it's, it's just cringy. So that's my talking trash part. I will pause there for comment. Well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play the DeSantis defender here, which is very hard for me. I'd be like, all right, well, you did an ad where you disassembled a gun and reassembled it. What makes that ad different, Jason? Tell me. Is that I wasn't like, look, I will reassemble this weapon a la Al Pacino incent of a woman <laughs> when he when he puts together his Springfield, you know, forty five or whatever the heck that was, right? Wow, well, like, you had that you had a quicker answer than I was expecting here. Well, I've been listening to the rewatchables on Cent of a Woman, so I've been thinking about it. But like that's the difference. I was portraying me being me, yep. just being like, hey, I can do this and I'm going to talk to you about it. You did a good job of being you, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> but but that's the thing is like, had, and I'm not just like a guy who's already done the ads and can say this. I can tell you that I had conversations with ad makers who would propose, what if we did one and it's kind of fun? And I'm like, nope, I will not be playing a character ever because I'm not good at it and it will make people uncomfortable. And that's the thing is like, unless you, I'm trying to think like Bill Richardson not a bad actor, you know, but most importantly, Bill Richardson, when he did like those Westerns and that silly stuff, you could tell that Bill Richardson was in on the joke. So that's the one caveat. If you're going to do this, be in on the joke, do a self parody, do something where it's like, obviously I wouldn't really be doing, look at me. Yeah. Like this is not. Well, that makes me feel better because I was actually about to drop on you the fact that I'm going to run an independent run for New York 10 congressional district with a Bollywood style announcement video. But it's it's slightly uh, it's slight parody. 
you know, like it's a little serious, a little not. You got to um, have that nod to the audience. Like, I know this yeah. is totally ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I mean, glass it passes your test then. Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah. Good. Well, we should, we should talk further about this. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, now, now I want to get into what I wouldn't this be is. the only Gupta in my family running in Manhattan for, for a seat. <laughs> That's right. You know? That's right. You it's should, a family business at this point. It. It's a family business. In all seriousness, where this isn't totally talking trash, I, I do think it's important for everyone to understand that this is Ron DeSantis with a nod toward uh, something he intends to run on a part of his biography that is important, which is Ron DeSantis is now still a Navy JAG reserve. He was an, an active duty Navy JAG, which is a Navy lawyer who, according to his Wikipedia, I don't know the full story on this, was somehow involved with the SEALs. Not sure how that works as a lawyer. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying like there's some there's also some SEAL adjacent language there that I'm not sure how that makes sense, but whatever. That's what he is. He received a Bronze Star. Uh, you know, not like I'm not taking anything away from him. I want people to be clear. Bronze Star is a medal given for merit as well as valor. He got a Bronze Star uh, for merit, um, which is to say they were like, you did a good job. Here's a Bronze Star medal. You were you did a good job as a lawyer during your deployment to Iraq. He is an Iraq veteran. I want people to understand, though, he clearly wants to figure out where the line is. And he wants to run on that. But it's a difficult uh, sort of line for him to walk because he was a Navy JAG. My thought on this initially was I was like, I would be I would love to see the faces of the other guys in his reserve Navy JAG unit when they watched his ad where he pretends to be a Top Gun pilot. Uh, uh, so yeah. anyway, yeah, it's different than Dan Crenshaw, <coughs> who we've given on you know, right. a lot of shit to his sort of Hollywood style videos. He at least was, I think, must have been special forces or something, right? Dan Crenshaw, yeah, he was. Plus and I, yeah, different. I mean, still, his ads are stupid, still, to be clear, but a different kind of stupid. I see a lot of Democrats out there, like on social media, comparing this to Dukakis. And I think that is an error because, yes, he looks silly and he, you know, made some poor choices in how he wanted to approach this, but he's not Mike Dukakis. Okay. Like he went to Iraq for the United States Navy. Like as a member of the United States Navy, he deployed to Iraq. He, he's an Iraq veteran. So people need to not fall into that trap. That is a mistake. Jason, it's really hot. I'm recording this podcast right now with the AC off because I don't want it playing in the background uh, and messing with the sound. And I'm sweating bullets. And I, I realized as I was looking down at my watch, which has the temperature, that it's been like in the 90s all week. And you read about things like fires and deaths from heat strokes in Europe, wildfires out west. It just seems like things are falling apart out here with our climate. And on top of that, it feels like you can't do anything about it personally. And that's why I'm so excited about our new partner, Ren. Ren is a website where you calculate your carbon footprint and, and then you offset it by funding projects that plant trees or protect rainforests and remove carbon dioxide from the sky. So signing up for Ren is an easy way to start actually doing something about the climate crisis. By answering a few questions about your lifestyle on Ren, you can find out your carbon footprint and how you can reduce it. You can't get your carbon footprint to zero, but you can find out how to reduce it and then you can offset what's left after that. Yeah, once you sign up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you receive monthly updates from the tree planting, rainforest protection, and carbon removal projects you support. That sounds awesome. You get to see the trees you planted and what your money is spent on. It'll take a lot to end this climate crisis, and you can start by helping today by learning more on ren.co slash majority54. That's ren.co slash majority54. If you sign up using our link and tell Ren we sent you, Ren will plant 10 extra trees in your name. Let's create a forest majority. 54. That's ren.co slash majority 54 to get started. 
All right, so we have a guest joining us this week. Uh, it's my friend Mark Zeno. Here is sort of the backstory here. So Mark is an Army veteran. He's actually still a full bird colonel in uh, the United States Army Reserve. He is, uh, like I said, a combat veteran. He has a, a, a podcast uh, called The Hazard Ground. He also does uh, some talk radio, mostly I think sports talk radio in the Atlanta area. And he is a guy who I've gotten to know because I have done his show, I think, three times now. And uh, we've just almost never talked politics. We've talked about veteran stuff and post-traumatic stress and, you know, that kind of stuff. But he has mentioned to me a couple of times that he leans more conservative. And we've been having these meetings at Majority 54. How do we mix things up a little? And we've been talking about, let's have some people on who we don't know their politics completely. And let's add them into the conversation. So I said, hey, how about Mark? I don't really know that much about your politics, Mark. And that's kind of exciting. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you very, very much. Uh, and interestingly enough, yes, I, I resided in sports talk, but you know, I did do a stint in political radio, and you guys will find this hysterical. Because after Rush Limbaugh passed away, there was sort of like a hole in the marketplace for Rush Limbaugh, you know, and there was this opening uh, in a market the size of Atlanta, especially in the South. And so a, another station in town here had launched a very small signal. Uh, you know, they wanted to be con conservative radio, and they asked me to do it because they knew that I had an affinity for politics and I'm still in the military. And you know, all this stuff is personal to me. As you said, I'm conservative. I, I don't really hide from it or run from it. But here's what happened. After about four months, they let me go. Uh, <laughs> and they let me go because essentially they were saying that I wasn't carrying the water enough for the demographic what they were looking for, which is that Rush Limbaugh pro-Trump area, <laughs> which while I am as conservative as they come, you can take your rhino thing. And, and if you're watching, you can give it that big old middle finger to measure levels of conservatism is a dangerous place to be, just like it is on the Democratic side. It's a dangerous place to be. So I actually got let go for, quote, not being conservative enough, which I found well, highly laughable. What do you think it what, was? It, was it a position you took or were you like not angry enough? I was told don't call January 6th an insurrection, you know, and I didn't I wasn't pro Trump enough. Uh, okay. So I didn't vote for him in 2016. <laughs> and then in 2020, I did vote for him because of the other alternative. And I really sat okay. at the ballot box. Okay. I remember this. I sat at the ballot box and, and checked the block and look, looked at Biden and just stared at it for a minute. I'm like, oh, I, I can do this. And then I looked and I checked Trump and I said, oh, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> and then I just kind of resigned to the fact that what I felt was at least the, the lesser of two evils and the better side of what more of what, what I was on and I hate falling for that party line deal. That kind of drives me nuts. Uh, I think you should be able to stand on some some ideas and thoughts that aren't necessarily within a party. And that doesn't make you a rhino. That just makes you an independent free thinker. All right. Well, Ravi, this is kind of perfect because our whole show is about finding persuadable voters and then like, you know, finding arguments that will persuade persuadable voters. And I feel like we, we have like a real one. Uh, yeah. With us. Let's talk about the news of the week. We have actually fresh off the presses literally minutes before we, we started recording. So we record this on Wednesday afternoon. The Biden administration has just announced their plan to forgive student loan debt. And so based on what I can tell, just based on this preliminary reporting, it was broke, broken by the Washington Post. And then the, the White House just sent out, I think, a, a little bit of information on this. They're going to uh, forgive up to $10,000 for recipients of student loans who didn't get Pell Grants and up to $20,000 if you did receive a Pell Grant. 
And I think the Pell Grant element of this was surprising. A lot of the rest of the details I think people had been expecting. And so forgiveness is only going to apply to those who earn less than $125,000. And then they're also going to extend student loan moratorium on payments until December 31st, 2022. And they say this is the final time they're extending that. They also are going to cap repayments of student loans to 5% of recipients' uh, monthly income. So essentially trying to target this to people at the bottom and middle end of the income scale. The White House estimates that 90% of the relief will go to people earning less than $75,000. So- what do we think of this? Is this good policy? I know, Jason, we've talked about this, I think, a while back, uh, essentially anticipating the exact details here, minus the Pell Grant element of this. But do we think this is good or bad? Well, you know, this is the part where usually I will start with, well, here's what the conservative point of view would be on this. And then I sort of, but now I think instead, I'm just going to be like, Mark, what do you think of this? Well, first of all, when did education become a federal issue? Like, the, what did, I missed the memo. Like, I only care about which school district my kids go to, right? Like, all of a sudden, this is now a national thing. So I I must have missed the part where we catapulted from, am I going to live in a good school district? Are my taxes going to pay for my kids to go to good schools to, oh, my God, everybody in America should have debt forgiveness. I, I think we skipped a couple of steps in between, but that may be a different conversation. My thing with this, first and foremost, more than anything, before you dive into the nitty gritty of all this. You know this, Jason. So much of politics is timing, okay? Yeah. And it's piss poor timing to throw this out there right now. Like, it's a bad idea for your wife to ask you for money to go on a vacation or to buy a fur coat after she's totaled your car. Like, it's not the best time to ask for that. Like, you need to massage the situation a little bit better. We have inflation. We've got 101 other problems that would supersede debt forgiveness on student loans. Um, that all of a sudden has become a thing. And it's like, why is this being pushed to the forefront? It's just a weird time. I'm not necessarily against it per se. You'd have to prove a little bit more of the merits to me. And and how many people are you really helping? Is this more a political move to say that you're able to do it and check the block? Or is there actually a tangible benefit that a majority of Americans are going to benefit from? Yeah. So what we could tell right now is that 43 million people will be eligible for this and 20 million will have their debt completely canceled. And Jason, I went through this stick with you before I, I, where I went through on a previous episode, you know, the cases for and against this. I think the case for this uh, is that the total amount of debt owed in this country has more than doubled since 2008. It's now uh, $1.7 trillion. And the government has like a huge role in this, Mark, to your point. Like when did the government start getting involved is a great question. I would, I suspect it started with the GI Bill and has expanded out since then um, in terms of just the government's involvement yeah, in higher education. There was education. a trade-off for the GI Bill. Like that, I think that's fair, right? Like yeah. there was a direct benefit trade-off that you're doing. I don't know that there's a direct benefit trade-off to actual regular students taking loans. I, I, I suppose there's an argument for that. Well, that's an interesting question, right? Because I, I've heard a lot of veterans frustrated with this because they say, well, hey, look, I did something for my GI Bill. What do people do for this? And then I think the other side to it, though, is that when the GI Bill was passed and it was you know, specifically for people who had served, college was like a thousand times more affordable for everybody else, right? So that's that's the difference. We're not really addressing the problem here of why it's so expensive to go to college or necessarily do you even need to go to college anymore. Like what is, I think there are values in certain degrees, like bachelor's degrees we're talking about, you know, regular college education. But, you know, there's an argument to be made by a lot of people nowadays that you just skip it, get right into the workforce. 
uh, because you could probably turn around and make more by the time you're 21 if you get in the workforce at 18 than you would being an entry-level job right out of college. This is where I came down, Jason, last time was I think that they could have used these reforms, and maybe there's something that I'm missing in the way that they're announcing this. They could have used these reforms to actually help make college more affordable, to actually push reforms and say, hey, moving forward, the only people eligible for these types of forgiveness programs are going to be people who go to certain colleges that we've deemed credit worthy, you know, like institutions that actually keep their costs low and produce the degrees that we want. I was just looking up before this, like, what are some of the degrees that are going to be recipients of this? And to be clear, I, I think some targeted version of this would be good, I th- but I do think I would target it for the jobs that we need, doctors, nurses, therapists, uh, paraprofessionals in schools, at-home care service providers, et cetera, not adventure education majors at Plymouth State University, bakery science and management uh, majors at Kansas State University, turf grass science majors at Penn State Golf course management at University of Maryland, bagpiping at Carnegie How come none Mellon of this University. was around when I was in uh, college? Where were these know, courses? They were not anywhere in the syllabus. Like, I, I did not get offered any of this. Because what we're saying, and there's actually a viral clip uh, that's going around the right right now on this, where Elizabeth Warren was, was pressed by one of her voters who said, look, I just, you know, I saved up and paid for my child's education. Now you're asking me to pay for somebody else. So I think it's the Democrats challenge here is with with the way that this is written is to be like, all right, you made a sacrifice. You don't benefit from this, but the you're going to pay for the bagpipe major at Carnegie Mellon University. That's a tough sell. So so is that why? Because it sounds like the way the way the Biden administration has structured this, it sounds like it is sort of a hey, we're going to do this. Uh we're not going to do this again is sort of what they're saying. What I hear them saying, we're going to do this. We're not going to do this again. And it's sort of like, because there's a lot of people with a lot of debt right now who got into what is in many ways, a very predatory system. And and then they're saying, so everybody needs to go into this with their eyes wide open going forward. But then it does beg the question of, if, if we're saying, OK, we're going to do this as a one time thing, almost like an amnesty sort of. And it's not a, it's as Mark said, it's not across the board, but for a lot of people. And then and then going forward, everybody needs to understand what they're getting into. It does beg the question of what are we doing going forward to make it more affordable? And the other, yeah. the other part I would add to this, too, is you mentioned the numbers about 20 million people will be completely forgiven. But I think you said around 34 million people. Look, we got 364 million people in America and growing. Right. So. And, and you, not all of them, obviously, college age or anything else, but l- let's agree 10, 12% of Americans are going to benefit from this. I, I just don't know if that's a big enough sell for me. I, I would argue that it is more than that, though, because uh, this sort of debt affects whole families, right? So it, while it, well, it won't benefit in the same No, I understand what you're saying. If you're, if you're a 29 year old who's still playing student loans and you got two kids, I mean, obviously it's affecting them as well. Well, and also what other, what other debt do you have as a result that your parents uh, are co-signers on, right? Like you, like your apartment, that kind of thing. So, cause I remember like when I was running for the Senate in Missouri, I, I remember a lot of times this issue would come up and I would have everybody in the room. I would say, okay, raise your hand. If you are affected by, by student loan debt, either yours or someone else's. And it was like 80 percent of the room, you know? Um, so I do think it, it has a real ripple effect 
that way. What I find it, what I think is interesting and um, noteworthy about the way you're approaching it, Mark, is there are a lot of people on the right, and I'm not saying you speak for the whole right, you speak for you and how you feel, but but there are a lot of people on the right who really pan all of this and say, look, they took out loans. They knew what they were getting into, but I don't hear you saying that. I hear you saying, like, I'm interested in the merits of this. I'm not one of these people who's like, okay, well, you know, I had to pay my debt and I'm old now. I don't really, not old, but you get the point. Now you have to pay yours because, well, that's like the hazing of life, right? Like my my parents didn't grow up with the internet. I I had the internet. Life was a lot. I didn't have to go sit in a library and go flip through pages of an encyclopedia to find stuff. Now I could just type away. I mean, so it's not like my parents said to me, you have to go to the library. No using that internet in the house. You have to go to the library and read their books just because I did. Laws change all the time. Rules change all the time. I, I can't get hung up on the timing of when things happen. Do I wish that someone was given student loan, loan forgiveness when I had them? Yeah, of course I do. Oh, well. I do think there's a way that this could be crafted. And I actually think it's still not too late for this moving forward that actually solves inflation. So one would be what I was talking about with the higher education peg to say, look, Let's use this tremendous power that the federal government may have, emphasis on may, because there's going to be a huge legal dispute about whether they have these powers or not. And let's actually use it to push these higher education institutions to lower their costs. That would help solve inflation. Two would be there's this, there's this provision in federal law called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which essentially is like the equivalent of the GI Bill for people who go to university and they become cops, they become firefighters. They become teachers. And after 10 years, people are eligible for forgiveness. Now, Biden has been issuing waivers and whatnot to that program to make it a little easier for people, but it's still a bureaucratic mess. It's still too much time. And it doesn't apply to private sector jobs that are in short supply, like nurses, um, nurse practitioners, doctors, therapists, et cetera. So I think that's where I would want to come across the aisle to people and say, all right, I know, Jason, you're a big proponent of public service programs and potentially how that could be one of the things that helps solve our polarization. Let's make that program easier to uh, comply with. Let's make it more robust. Let's forgive people a little bit earlier uh, and let's extend it to the private sector for jobs that are in the public service, right? Like we need nurses, whether they're in private hospitals or public hospitals, we should be incentivizing people to go into that work. I think if you combine those two things with a program like this, it would help solve inflation and help solve our labor shortage and probably increase the quality of our schools and our healthcare system and and deal with the huge growing population of retirees that we have who are going to need at-home care nursing home care and things like that. That's, that's what I want to see from this white house. You know, I'm with you. I listen, I I think there's a, there's a yes here, right? There's a, there's a yes where you can do this. That makes sense. And still, you know, uh, helps all the things that you talked about. And I'm with Jason, like whether, whether it's before you start college in order to check the block of student loan forgiveness down the road, year in the Peace Corps, whatever it may be, work for your local government for a year, you know, at, at a at a above minimum wage, whatever it may be. I mean, you guys can figure out the nuances of, of what it's going to look like. I don't think we need to dice that up here. But the point is simply that you give back first before you get. Uh, and I think that, you know, in the big picture, hopefully pays dividends down the road after college for people to learn to understand a little bit more and get a wider scope of, hey, now I get to leave the house and and go party in a, in a fraternity or sorority for a year and, and Three years later, somebody gives me a degree and I and I, I get an entry level job. Like, there's got to be a smarter, better path to contribute to society than that. The issue with all because I think we all found something we agree on. I think the issue with all of it is is that the White House can't do that unilaterally. Is that they need a they need Congress and 
ultimately, I think it would be hard to get that past the filibuster because I don't think the Republicans would go for it. Because, which, but see, and, that, and that's the problem. And I don't know how we fix this, guys. Like, how do we twist the political environment that we're in right now? That is basically, if you're not with me, you're against me. That there is no middle ground, that there's not room to meet, because if you do meet, you get labeled right. and you get outcast and you get shunned. And it's just one of those things where that is more damaging to anything that we have going on right now, because what, we, what are we doing? We're suppressing free thought. That's why I give a ton of credit to Manchin. Democrats seem to hate the guy. I, I don't love him any more than I do any. I, I love him because he's willing to stand on his own principles. He's been due for a defender on this show, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I mean, what, I, I'm what, serious. I'm serious. What I think is not to like about somebody who is willing to have a, a set of values and principles that they won't bend and flex on because I, they truly believe it's for the betterment yeah, of the people. I, I joke, I joke, but, uh, you know, in the Mansion Cinema conversation, I think Mansion has been much more favorable on this show. Like, you know, because, like, I think that though we find his positions frustrating with her, we're like, we think they're more self-serving. And maybe his too, we don't know. So I recently took a food sensitivity test from our sponsor, Everly Well. I was pretty nervous because cottage cheese plays like a pretty central role in my life. I just was like really concerned about how I, I was going to respond on the test to cottage cheese. So I was very relieved to find out that I do handle cottage cheese well. So, you know, didn't have to go change everything around in my diet and in my life and even in my evening routine. Now, Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers you need, like the food sensitivity test. Here's how it works. Everly Well ships products straight to you with everything that is needed in one package. To take your at-home lab test, you simply collect your sample and you use the included prepaid shipping label to mail your test back to a certified lab, and your physician-reviewed results get sent to your phone or your device in just days. For listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your next at-home lab test. That's everlywell.com slash majority54. Jason, I've gotten a lot of comments from people about my Athletic Greens ad read last week about how I uh, drink it in a wine glass. Half of them are, I think, incredulous uh, that I would do such a thing. And I think half of them are like, oh, I'm going to try that. So I want to give our audience permission to send me more messages. Uh, but what I'm specifically looking for are photos of you drinking your athletic greens from a wine glass, your AG1. You may be wondering if you're new to this episode, what the heck we're talking about. Jason, why don't you drop some knowledge on us? AG1 from Athletic Greens is great for you. One delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So all the things. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Another stick in the mud for many people has been Anthony Fauci, who's just announced his intention to retire. 
And that happens at the. <laughs> Mark, can't see. Mark, Mark, Mark just made a praying up. motion, like a just thank God. A like, thank you. This will be an interesting you. conversation. This, right. hap- this happens roughly the same week that the CDC director has announced major changes and reforms to the CDC. Let's take Fauci first, but essentially, just to set the scene for people, Anthony Fauci. I, I did not realize this until reading this. I've always, I, I vaguely remember seeing him on Charlie Rose and whatnot ever since I was a little kid, and, and I was wondering, you know, how, when did this guy start? This guy has been the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984, the year after I was born. Um, This guy has been through AIDS, SARS, H1N1, Ebola, COVID-19, now monkeypox. And in examining his record this morning, I was just staggered by just the amount of things this guy has been a part of. And in contrast to the CDC, which we'll talk about, this is a career appointment. And so one thing that we can juxtapose is what does it mean when you're a political appointee versus a career appointee for these two institutions? Mark, given uh, I think our people know our rough take on on Fauci and the global health, uh, public health response, uh, tell me why you gave that praying motion, why, why you wanted to see Fauci go. He should not be fired or should not have to quit or not get over his job because of his acumen in the in the world of epidemiology or science or anything else. I've never doubted that about Fauci, where he has critically failed. And this goes back to Trump. And I said it then. You can go check my Twitter feed. They failed at the messaging. Do not put somebody out in front of a crisis that cannot message crisis properly. The military does it all the time. They don't send the guy who just walked off the battlefield to give the the speech to the, the, the folks in the media about what just went on. They take a polished, clean leader who can speak eloquently and intelligently about everything that went on in ways that aren't going to confuse people about things they don't understand. And that's where Fauci has critically and routinely failed. He has not only destroyed the message on COVID, but he's, he has been part of the reason that the trust for the medical community in government has been basically erased. Let, let me let me ask this, though, like because here's what I think fans of Fauci, of which I would count myself one, would say that at least initially, there, if I'm him, there's two reasons that things, my message would keep changing, at least during the Trump administration. One would be the science was changing a lot. Like we just didn't know anything, you know, like I remember when I remember, I remember wiping down my groceries, like, and like, and and like my whoop registering it as like a workout because it took forever and nobody knew the difference. And so that would make it hard to be consistent initially. But the other thing is your argument, which I can hear is just like, don't, don't put the practitioner out front. But what I remember was the Trump administration decided to put him out front because they thought that Trump wasn't credible. And they were right. So I, I feel like I could understand, like, because I think your criticism about, you know, like last Christmas, I think that's fair. Like, I think at that point, most people were like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to Christmas dinner. Like, but I feel like that's unavoidable during the Trump administration. Yeah, I, I want to add to that and say, like, you know, I was just pulling open this book from Slavit, uh, Jason, because I was just mm-hmm. looking at it this morning. This was February 24th. Trump was in India. We had 53 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States. And he says, I think the whole situation will start working out. They'll all start getting better. Now, you can go through pages and pages of him saying things like this is the this is the, you know, the, the top guy in the country. And Mark, I'll get around to acknowledging, I think, like the complications of where I see Fauci having made mistakes. I think Fauci was wrestling with a president who, to me, was unwilling to confront the science and support his public health officials. To, to have any kind of organized response. And to me, that was really challenging for Fauci. There was one thing that Fauci did really early on that I think saved a lot of lives, which is he started cooperating with Moderna 
and gave them the information they needed to develop a vaccine almost immediately, which is, I think, something underreported. Actually, where most people talk about it is all this conspiracy theorizing. It's Fauci trying to make money, yada, yada. That saved a ton of lives. Another thing Fauci did that a lot of people don't realize is that under Bush, he and Bush pushed this program PEPFAR program, they saved at least 21 million lives, according to global estimates, um, due to their their HIV AIDS response. You know, so he has a long record in the public square. I agree with Jason that there's a lot of things where I'm like, all right, the 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 science might have changed, yada yada. There are three things though that I'll I, I personally, when I look at Fauci, not the CDC, what I wish he had done differently. One was the messaging around masks. I do think there was some of the science changing, but I think a lot of that was there was stuff going on behind the scenes where he could have been more upfront about the resource limitations and explained it as that instead of explaining it as what the science was suggesting. I think two is where he was in front of Congress and Rand Paul was pushing him on this uh, Wuhan lab leak theory and this gain of function research, which is something we've covered on the show before. Fauci was being a little too cute with his definition. And I think that's that really gave a lot of fodder to conspiracy theorists where Fauci should have just said, you know what? I don't, I don't want to wordsmith gain-of-function research. We were funding it. It was a little convoluted, but we did. I think that could have actually done a lot to, to shore up trust and not give ammunition to conspiracy theorists. The third was he said he was giving an interview to Don McNeil of the New York Times, and this is something I hear a lot on the right. I'm sure, Mark, you've heard this one before, where they, they call it this sort of noble lie of Fauci, where Fauci was saying, look, he was talking about herd immunity to Don McNeil. And he said, you know, I was originally saying it was 70 to 75% to achieve herd immunity. But then he says, when newer surveys say that 60% or more would take the vaccine, I thought, this is what he said, I can nudge it up a bit. So I went with 80 to 85% for herd immunity. Now that is a quote that is making, that has never gone away on the right, because essentially what Fauci was saying was I'm changing the definition of the science in order to push people to get the vaccine. Now, I like the motivation, which is to get more people the vaccine. I believe in the vaccine. I do not, to your point, Mark, as a public official trying to shirk the confidence in these institutions, those are three mistakes. Now, when I put his public record, how many lives he saved, both through the Moderna stuff and other things he did and the PEPFAR, I... I think it's I'm personally a fan of his his track record but I I yeah but I agree with you that there were some huge mistakes I, there. Again, this wasn't about Fauci as a scientist or an epidemiologist. It was never about that. I never questioned the guy's ability to do this and and I I was aware I'm one of the few people who was aware of the the thing that George Bush did W Bush did in 2005 uh and created this whole little department to you know combat the next epidemic which you know again something that George W Bush never got credit for. But that said, you know I don't I don't doubt his knowledge. It's just he's not sitting in a room one on one explaining it to somebody in a way that they're and I'm sure he can in a room one on one explaining it to somebody the way they can understand. He's trying to appease 300 million people in an interview and he's failing miserably at it. It's not all on him because social media, the media in general and everything else takes these quotes and they run with them and they blow them up and they they make them bigger than what they are uh, sometimes. But Jason, the other thing I would say, too, is that much like the science changing is constantly fluid, I'll go back to the military. When they have to report on a battle every single day in Afghanistan, the situation is always fluid. But you got to know what you're going to say before you're going to say it. And you have to be willing to admit mistakes when you're wrong. That's the point. That's the other problem he never did. You know, There never was a sense of, look, guys, we thought this. And so we acted on this information at the time. And we did this. We were wrong. We now have to pivot. Because saying we were wrong gets everybody to go, Okay, I might not 
trust you and I might not like you, but the fact that you acknowledged it and wanted to correct the mistake at least allows me to believe that you're going to do it again if you make another mistake. Speaking of that, that's a good transition to the CDC, who actually did just that. Now, I think the big question is going to be, will this stick? But uh, Walensky under the CDC just announced major overhauls to its operations in tandem with essentially, Mark saying, not essentially, but saying, look, we screwed a lot of things up. Uh, And this was a speech that she gave a week ago. So essentially, the goals of this restructuring are to improve the culture and restore public trust, essentially, you know, the goals that you just uh, outlined. And essentially, they're going to simplify and streamline the bureaucracy in many ways. So everybody's reporting up to the same person. Um, They're creating like new divisions just to make people communicate better. Um, They have a new online mechanism to uh, pre-publish science that really needs to get out there into our communities and get needed data where it needs to go. They're pushing for more data sharing also among states uh, with the federal government, which has been a big issue in our federalist system. And if you compare us to other countries that are more parliamentary, that's something a lot of people say was a problem. Uh, Appointing a head of communications, which has been an empty postmark for four years, (laughs) um, and changing the promotion system, et cetera. One thing I would want to add to this, you know, Michael Lewis, the the great writer, wrote a book called The Premonition, which looked at what happened with the CDC. And essentially what he said is if you take the politics, Trump, Biden, I mean, he's very unforgiving to Trump for sure. But and he wrote this, he wrote the book like in the early days of the, the Biden administration. So he doesn't have a lot to say about Biden yet. He says the biggest thing he would change about the CDC is turn it from a political appointee to a career appointee because he says that you know these people are renters, not owners. So they come in and their average lifespan of people at the head of a lot of these agencies is 18 months. So they're not around long enough to build the expertise. And that seems really compelling to me, which is, you know, maybe, you know, Fauci was around too long, but maybe some of these other people, you know, 1984, that's a long time. Now, you know, 10 years, 15 years, that seems right to me. I go back to the 20-year limit, same thing as service. And it should be the same thing for elected officials uh, in Congress. Once you hit 20, you're out. Like, that's it. You're done. You've done 20 years of public service, you're out. You sh- nobody mm-hmm. should be able to serve in any government post longer than 20 years. Take your pension, get the hell out of Dodge and see you. It's an interesting idea because... Usually when people propose term limits, it's like six, eight years. I don't, I don't know what I think about that, but I think it's a funny idea and a fun one. And it reminds me of a, a friend of mine who once said that um, senators should be elected for life, but executed at 75. <laughs> that's, that's, that's about right. You know, there's some staggering stuff that came out when she issued this report, which is she used to be the New York City Health Commissioner and said that she had 20 times more flexible dollars in that role than she did as CDC director. So there's just not a lot of flexibility to do what you need to do. They talked about how the COVID team has turned over so quickly that people don't know who to communicate when they talk about COVID. And and you go through all this to say data is not coming out. People aren't staying in their jobs. Money isn't flexible. And you're saying, all right, in, in a world where the monkeypox or whatever is next, we need to share up money. We need to communicate quickly. We need our, there's certain, even if you're the most libertarian, I think most people would agree that we need public health institutions that are, that are actually well-functioning. No, you know? We do. I mean, again, and if we've learned anything from disease, COVID in New York and California and Florida and Georgia was not the same as Wyoming, Montana, and Utah. Like they just weren't the same disease. And so th- there is a part of me that gets all federalist and believes just it should be handled at the state level. But that's the other thing. How much I would like to see some more connectivity from the CDC to each of the Department of Public Health. But you could go to the CDC website, look at numbers, go to the Georgia Department of Public Health, look at numbers and any other state department, even a county department of public health, 
And you get three different sets of numbers. That's problematic. I think you'd be happy to know she's she couldn't do that on her own, but she has asked Congress for uh, a bill that would mandate that information sharing. Now, I think it's a whole other step to say like there's a certain standard that everybody meets, but I think the first step towards that is transparency, right? So we even know what we need to know. You know, it's the challenge of this federalist system. I agree. Like I think more liberals are getting more into federalism now as the as they see what's happening at the federal government level. And I think in some ways that's good, but the challenge of federalism is a little bit of chaos that comes along with it. It's a, it's a harder to, it's harder to coordinate. So the button I would put on this whole conversation is that I think when we talk about Fauci and the CDC, we are talking about actors who have been naturally limited by the political actors around them. And so I think the big lesson for me out of all this is that politicians have to allow public health officials and scientists to do their job without because like I'm not I'm not absolving Fauci for nudging the numbers in that one example. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that it is the it is the political climate that put him in a position where he was like, I got to figure out how to navigate around the politics, which so I think the lesson for those of us who are not public health officials is how do you create the space for the CDC, for somebody in Fauci's role to do their job without having to sort of do some, you know, to borrow a military term, Mark, some Kentucky windage around around the political obstacles. Well, New York Times is reporting that uh, a conservative nonprofit group has scored $1.6 billion in one donation from a little known donor. To put this in perspective, the $1.6 billion donation which is to this group called the Marble Trust by a guy named Leonard Leo, is more than the $1.5 billion spent in 2020 by 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that align with Democrats. So this one donation dwarfs all of that spending um, by the major groups, the Democratic groups in 2020. I, I, full disclosure, ran one of those groups. I don't know if we were in the top 15, but I know this world. So essentially, you create a, a 501c4 and uh, and I've run 501c4s before. I'm on the board of a few of them right now. They're nonprofit institutions in in one way and not the other. So they're not nonprofit in the sense that if if Jason, you donated money to my C4, you can't write that off your taxes. That's why it's a C4, not a C3. But I don't have to pay taxes as the person running the C4. Now, this clever guy decided, all right, he was running a business that was about to be acquired. So he was about to see a huge profit. Now, one world would have been he could have reaped the profit from that, paid his taxes, and then donated what he wanted to this group. Instead, what he did was donate his entire ownership stake in the company before it was acquired to this conservative group. And because that group was a C4, neither the guy who made the donation nor the group has to pay taxes. So it dramatically increased the impact of this. To be clear, I don't know if there's anything illegal. I have no reason to think there's anything illegal in the article in the New York Times. They would have been motivated, trust me, to find a legal expert to say it was illegal, and they didn't. Based on my understanding of the law, this is totally illegal. I think my question is putting the shoe on the other foot, right? Like, I'm sure this will now happen. A Democratic donor will will try something like this too at some point. Do we like this? Do we like the fact that one person has that kind of power to to put that kind of money in a political system. It certainly doesn't seem like the spirit of the law, right? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. this is why we yeah. have C3s and C4s. We have gotten to such a place within our political system. And this is what I mentioned earlier. This is kind of money that actually can, you know, put a dent in our national debt. 
of significant value. Like not, you know, you're not going to race it by any stretch, but remember back in the days when you used to have to balance a budget, like this is the kind of money that would help balance a budget. I don't even know the word, but it's deplorable just comes to mind. Like the idea that this is the amount of money that is flowing through our political system. No wonder why nobody wants to retire from political office. No wonder. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's eating our government away from the inside out. Those people are now dictating policy off of donations as opposed to dictating policy off of what is best for everybody. I try to put myself in the position of this donor, right? Where you're like, I don't know a lot about his life, but he's not a young guy. And he, this is probably a huge part of his life's work has been creating this company that he sold. And he's not like, you know what? I'm going to donate it to my local school system. I'm going to get, you know, nets to to help malaria in Africa or, you know, allow nurses to go to school for free. This is what we've gotten to in this country. We hate each other so much that this is what people are doing with their sort of their their golden years is they're saying, you know what, I'm going to give everything I've worked for. I'm not knowing everything that this guy's worked for, but a huge chunk of it. And it's going to be to try to take down the political opposition. That's that's what our system is now. So this kind of stuff is why I think we need public financing of campaigns, which is a controversial idea. But I just think in the long run, it saves us money. Like when we don't have politicians having to think about where their campaign, you know, I know that this doesn't go to a candidate, right? But look, it's because we have limits on campaigns that this kind of money flows into the dark money system, right? It's, it's, it's to, and, to and fill. it's kind of a joke at this point, limits on campaigns, yeah. right? There's 100%. so many workarounds. Like what, what are we doing here? Exactly. You know, it's like, oh, I, I I can shoot off the test by texting you, but I just can't look over your shoulder and see what you're writing down. Like, I mean, what, what are we doing here? So I just wonder, like, well, you wouldn't get rid of the dark money system if you had public financing. You would you would make it so much less essential to the success of candidates if like if campaigns were funded at a public it's true level. true in New York. Yeah, absolutely true in New York where there's a huge matching system and there's like a huge incentive to stay within that system. It allows regular people to run without having to worry about too much raising money. And you can also incentivize people to raise in their district, which New York does, right? So that it's you know, it actually becomes more local. You force people to stay in the district. They're doing less fundraisers and, you know, in Dallas and Los Angeles and San Francisco. You know, I like that. But it's hard to convince people of because people are like, I'm not paying for these politicians to play their games. But I just think the argument you got to make is, well, you're paying one way or the other because you're, you're paying with the policies they, they end up passing to cater to donors if they need, you know. And, and that's the other part. And the other part what this does is it it keeps out people who might have a desire who want to run or or at least have some ideas or be willing to you know come up with things I, I've investigated this before like I, I've I constantly think about running for office and and I get more turned off on it by the current political environment that we're in because you know like coal mining you ain't washing it off once you get in you're stuck you're dirty there's no way you're coming out clean nobody's coming out clean unless you do what Jason did and you just never really you know get involved all the way you, you pull out for the right reasons um but that's uh, nobody. Uh, don't worry. I still got cold dust. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> just, I, I, good to know you're, you're not exempt from uh, Jason. From that should have been the title of your memoir. Pull cold out dust. for the right reasons. <laughs> I think you would have gotten a lot of crossover appeal. Uh, yeah, that's confu- true. A lot of confused readers. Uh, that's true. <laughs> I would have bought it then. Um, a different conversation. So my point is, is that uh, you're cutting off the pool of people who can actually get involved in this thing. This is a good place to stop. And it's been a true pleasure to talk to you. 
And I imagine if you're in Atlanta, then you're a Falcons fan. Is that right? Or have you maintained your New York allegiance? I haven't lost my New York roots. I'm a Yankees, Giants, Knicks. Uh, you know, I, I stay. My kids are all raised the same way. So uh, oh, good. Oh, that's good hard point. to do. That's hard to do to raise them, you know, when you're in a different place to indoctrinate them into. into oh, your I thought hometown. you. Hey, Mark, I thought you said New York, not New Jersey. How did you become a Giants fan? <laughs> because I didn't have an option and Buffalo wasn't that close. There How's you that go. Sound? There you go. My old man right. was a Giants we'll fan. Talk, and that's how we'll I was raised. Yeah, different conversation. Sorry. I know. In New Jersey. Yeah. New, New, Jer- New Jersey Giants. Yeah, we, yeah. we can't all be Patrick Mahomes fans over there. Uh, yeah. You know. All right. This has been awesome. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it, man. Thank anytime, guys. Have me back anytime. I loved it. It was great to chat with you both. Listen, folks, we did something a little bit different this episode. We enjoyed it. I have two thoughts on this. One, leave us a comment to let us know what you thought of this, what you thought of our conversation with Mark. Probably a lot of you thought we could have been harder on Mark. You you know, that sort of thing. Some of you thought, oh, I see what they're doing. They're modeling how to approach people who disagree with you. You don't go after them hard. You try and bring them over a little at a time. Maybe you, maybe that's what you got out of it. If so, let us know. If you think, no, you got that all wrong, let us know that. But in addition to the comments, if you would leave us a voicemail or send us an email about that, we would love to hear that, your thoughts about that conversation so we can address them on a future episode. 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589, or email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. That's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Mark is at Mark Zeno on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.